This week on Writers Inc. Not starting self-publishing just seems like making the, the journey more difficult for you. It just seems like the most natural way to get started is to write stories and put them out there and try to develop an audience and work on your craft and hopefully develop the body of work that's going to get someone's attention and get you the deal that you're looking for, whether it's continue with self-publishing or, or do some hybrid deals or get a traditional author uh, offer. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. All right, JD, we are here for our first official interview episode of uh, the Writer's Inc. podcast. Pretty excited. You want to announce our guest? Yeah, this is um, a favorite of mine. It's Hugh Howie. Um, we, we actually have the same agent. Um, we've, we've never actually talked. We've emailed each other a couple of times. Um, Hugh is one of those guys, anybody in the indie world knows his name. I mean, he's, he's very transparent as far as numbers. Um, he's been in the game for a very long time. He, he wrote a number of books before he actually had one that took off. Um, but, and he, you know, he works with the, the numbers guy. I mean, he's, he's got like incredible insight on Amazon and the entire process. And he puts that out there for everybody, which, which is fantastic. And he, you know, I reached out to him real early on when I was querying on my very first book and, you know, he took the time to respond back to me and, um, you know, gave me some really helpful advice. And I'm sure one of these days I'll actually run into him in person and get to shake his hand. But, um, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to, to actually have him on the podcast. And anytime you get the opportunity to hear him talk as an author, I think you, you should jump at it because he He's, he's got so much knowledge. I mean, he's, he's been there, done that across the board. Um, and he's a very, very smart guy. I mean, he knows what's coming. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's watching, you know, the future of this. And he, he knows where we're going to be in a couple of years or about as close to it as you can get without a, a very, you know, good crystal ball. Um, <laughs> I, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Yeah, he, he really is. He's such a warm, generous guy. And it, it's funny, we, we both have a story because I, I reached out to him uh, about a book I was writing and the protagonist was supposed to be living on a boat. And I was like, oh. man, that's the perfect guy to ask. And, <laughs> and he read like the first four chapters and gave me some great feedback on it. And, and you know, he doesn't have to do that. And I'm sure he gets enormous amounts of email. And I was just really grateful. And that's just the kind of guy he is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that during the interview, that's probably going to come across. I mean, he's just he will reach out and help anybody that he possibly can. You do have to catch him up when he's when he's off the boat, though, at this point, he disappears <laughs> off to sea every once in a while. He's a little harder to track down, but yeah, definitely you, worth it. Yeah, you, you have to make sure he's got a signal from somewhere. And that's not always the case. Yep. Excellent. Well, uh, let's jump into the to the interview with Hugh Howie. And then we'll uh, come back on the flip side and kind of talk about some high level takeaways we got from it. Well, I thought I would start by, uh, I, I was trying to come up with some good questions that you may not have been asked before, but of course I, I have to start with one you're probably tired of answering, which is, uh, what's the latest with wool? <laughs> uh, uh, I, you know, I don't get tired of, um, any of these questions. Good. Um, it's, it's nice to be reminded that there's still 
someone out there working on turning one of these books into a, a TV show or movie. So, right. Uh, I don't mind. I don't mind coming up at all. Good. Um, right. Right now, the latest is uh, AMC has the option for Wolf for a TV show, which we were, you know, we were with Ridley Scott and looking at doing a feature with 20th Century 20th Century Fox for a few years. But um, I've just loved as a consumer the this golden age of TV we're in, this long form storytelling. Yes. So it's a uh, you know never. Uh, well, I wouldn't say never. It's usually not as lucrative to do um, deals for TV, but I think it'd be a better product. So we um, had we shifted gears, went to out to some different um, people with uh, Wool as a TV show, and got a lot of interest, and and had to agonize over a decision, but settled with AMC just because of um, the the quality they put out. They don't just. I think some of the other people we would have gone with would have definitely made something by now, but. Um, I, I I only want something made if it's going to be like really amazing, and yeah. you know that means that the chances of it getting made are much smaller. But um, right now they're hiring writers and pretty early on in the process, and I I just tell people like not to, you know, Margaret Atwood waited a few decades to get <laughs> Handmaid's Tale out there. So you know I, I think even if it happens posthumously, um, I. I, I think uh, it's it's exciting just to have someone interested in it and developing it and working on a world that you created. And I'm not impatient to see something on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, and AMC seems to be a pretty good brand as far as the the type of stories you write and wool wool specifically. Yeah, I, I, Breaking Bad I think is one of the best things that's ever been on TV. Yeah, I've same seen here. The entire <laughs> show twice and like for uh, for seasons to just get stronger and stronger and for it to end in such a satisfying way, it's just so difficult to pull off. And, and um, yeah, some, some of the individual episodes and, and scenes are just like instant classics and will be studied for a long time. And that pilot is so much fun to read and to watch. Um, but, you know, they've also shown um, with Breaking Bad, the ability to get a lot of people interested in a, in a adaptation from a, um, a printed work and uh, I've, they've had several shows I've really liked. And so I felt good going with them. And I love the creative team there that I'm with. That's fantastic. I, I know that uh, one of the, one of the questions that, that probably a lot of authors consider if they were to be in your position is you know, how much creative input can you have and, or do you want? And, and I know it's early on in the process, but what is sort of your take now on, on what you might be able to contribute to the show? Um, I, I think I've had the opposite experience from most of my uh, writer friends who've gone through this. Like um, the people that I've done deals with have wanted me to have like a ton of involvement. They've wanted me to, to do um, a lot of the writing and to, you know, be in the room. And honestly, I haven't wanted to do any of that. Like I, I wrote a pilot just uh, to see if I could, even before I had to deal with anybody, I sent it out to several different studios and said, Hey, you guys are all like dying for me to write something like this is what I would write. And, and so I totally wrote a wool pilot on spec that, you know, I would, uh, I probably will self publish one day because like I wrote it for myself. So no, no one owns the, uh, <laughs> the rights to it uh, as far as I know. But um, uh, I, I honestly would rather just hire the people who will do the best job at this medium and bring their own creative energy into it and feel ownership over it and uh and change a lot of the story to make it fit the uh 
um, the small screen or big screen, wherever we went with it. So I, I'm not precious about it. Like I wrote the books and that's not going to change. I, I, it's probably an extension of my allowing fan fiction for so many years and for people to profit off that. I just have a, an old school view of um, the storytelling tradition. And I think um, most people today have a very modern view of the storytelling tradition, which is that you write, you know, one author writes one book and it doesn't get changed and no one else is allowed to play with those characters. And that's such a, a recent phenomenon for most of human history. Storytelling has been collaborative and open sourced and fan fiction. And, you know, the, the, the Bible is written that way. Um, the great um, Greek classics were told for a long time before they were put down, but shared in that way. So I, when I think of storytelling, I, 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 there's a campfire in my mind anytime we talk about storytelling, not this book that um, is like holy and can't be altered and belongs to one person. Um, it's just you know, such a, a, a modern way of looking at storytelling that I can't get into because it's not what is in our DNA when it comes to storytelling. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, you think about, uh, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and I don't necessarily believe Homer's a person. I think Homer may be a collective of people over generations or centuries that, that created those stories. So I think that's a very worthwhile point to make there. Totally. And even if Homer, if, if, if he was a person, um, he or she took a lot of people's work and made like the this one version of it. And then of course we have translators now making their versions of it. And that's what we end up reading. Um, I, I don't know why we're so precious about um, the, the way stories are, are put down and, and who did it. I mean, what, what should be important is our interaction with it and how they make us feel and the conversations that they engender. Um, I, it's, it's funny watching people the, the um, you know, just go crazy about grammar and typos and spelling. Mm -hmm. And then you read like Shakespeare's drafts and how he would spell a word several different ways in one in a single play and take such liberty with, with language. And to me, that's like, um, it, it's the difference between painting on a blank canvas canvas and, and doing a paint by number. And I'm into like storytelling in more of the blank canvas kind of way than um, like, these are the, these are the rules and this is how things have to be. Yeah, it, you enjoy it. You have fun doing it. And I think that comes through in your writing and in your style and even in the way you live your life. And uh, I, I think that's a good, uh, a good segue into a question I, I've been really um, interested in asking you. I, I was talking to Josh Mallerman the other day, and he said that you were at the Bird Box premiere in L.A. And I was wondering if you could just tell me what that was like. Oh, that was one of the coolest experiences ever. And it and actually um, checked so many um, like bucket list items off my, my list that I, the idea of getting something made of my own is like even less important now than it was before, because, um, you know, part of what I enjoy about having things optioned and going through this process is just seeing how things get made and what the steps are like. So, you know, having people pitch themselves as studios and, and do, um, options and, you know, dealing with agents and making these decisions, it's all so much fun. And then watching, you know, Fox write um, movie scripts and dealing with the writers and directors as someone who loves cinema. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. And I've always assumed like, if I'm going to go to a like red carpet, uh, Chinese theater movie premiere in Hollywood, 
for some book that got made into a, a film, the only way that's going to happen for me is if it's my book, because like, who else is going to invite me? <laughs> um, so Josh like totally stepped up and it's, it's really cool. We had the same agent and I get pitched like every week I get another manuscript or book that, that someone's dying for me to read and blurb and I just can't do it all. But my agent, Kristen Nelson was like so excited about this book. She told me the premise and I was like, I, I want to read that. And I don't, I don't care. Like if no one accepts my blurb on it, like, I just want to read the story. And I think I was like the first blurb they got back, which I know from trying to get people to blur my stuff. It's a big deal. That first person to take a, a swing on something. It's, it's, it's a big, um, it's a big ask. And I was delighted to do it because I love the book. And then I met Josh. We um, hung out at a um, New York Comic-Con uh, one year and we just really hit it off. And I didn't realize how appreciative he was about, you know, um, reading his book early on until he invited me to this premiere. And it was amazing. And it satisfied like so many of my just, I don't know, the curiosity of seeing what that's like and going to the after party afterwards and the like the insider after party and hanging out with all the crew and um, kind of reveling in all of his success and the whirlwind that he was going through. Uh, I, uh, I totally dug it. And if it, it doesn't even happen to happen to me now, because I feel like I, I know exactly what it would be like, and I can imagine it and living through it would just be um, a bit repetitive now. No, that's, that's so heartwarming to hear. Cause I think Josh is one of those real gems in the industry. He's such a sweet, honest guy. And, uh, we're all rooting for him. I mean, even from the moment, you know, the book came out and just knowing what he's doing with his band and he's sort of salt of the earth, Rust Belt, Michigan. And, uh, to see that hit the screen and then to see the, the way Netflix launched that movie, uh, was, it, it felt like a win for all of us. I, I, I felt the same way as you, even if, even though I wasn't at the premiere. <laughs> yeah. Anytime something gets made, I'm just so excited for whoever, everyone behind it from the um, you know, the people on set to the people backstage. My sister does set design for TV and film. And of course she only is working on things that are actually getting made, but um, just knowing how difficult it is to, to get to that part of the process. I'm so excited for anyone involved that gets to, to watch, you know, their creative endeavors, like actually get put on the air. So um, yeah, man, it's, uh, it, it's so cool too, to see original, um, content like that, like something that's not a sequel and not a right. remake, a reboot, get exactly. a chance and become a cultural phenomenon. Like when it started becoming a meme, like that's, you know, you, you can't dream of that. Yeah. You can, you can, you can barely dream of your book getting turned into a, a film, but then for it to become something that even people who haven't seen the film or read the book knew what Bird Box was because of the, the blindfolding meme, like that was insane to watch. Yeah. Um, but I think a, another one of the amazing things about having any kind of success in the, in a creative field is that you get to become friends with other creative people who you would only like fantasize about getting to hang out with and getting to know it as people. And when that starts happening to you, you realize just how dumb lucky you are. And, um, uh, that's something I pinch myself all the time. Like I've just been in social situations now where I'm sitting there hanging out with someone that I would pay like way too much money <laughs> to spend time with and we're hanging out as if we're colleagues and I'm 
maybe they have some of the same self-doubt that I do, but I'm, you know, the imposter syndrome kicks in really hard when you're in the presence of people that you look up to like that. And you're all chatting as if you're all the same people and and in your brain, you're like, they're different from me. So that happens to me a lot. And, and it's, I feel very fortunate when I'm in those situations. Well, it's good to know that you still have imposter syndrome (laughs) for the rest of us. That's comforting in some way. Uh, You had mentioned Kristen uh, Nelson. She's got quite a stable of of writers. Uh, She tends to, seems like she specializes a lot in post-apoc, dystopian, um, you know, sort of darker fantasy. I'm curious if you could maybe talk for a moment about what role she plays as your literary agent when you ha- have pretty firm roots in the self-publishing world going back 10, 12 years. Well, she's, she's been amazing. And, you know, I, I didn't really want an agent or think I needed an agent because, um, you know, when, when I couldn't get one, I, I don't think I would have wanted to work with anyone who would have taken me at that point. Um, and then by the time I had the kind of success where I could pretty much pick whatever agent I wanted because they were just going to tap into a revenue stream I'd already generated. I didn't really think I needed one, but she came along and, and was so excited to leverage my existing success self-publishing to go to publishers and reject standard deals and try to push for new terms. So she saw working with me as a, an opportunity to improve the the deals she was able to win for her existing and future writers so other people were like hey that's great you did this self-publishing thing now we're going to get your traditional deal and you're going to cut me in and we're going to make some money and that wasn't Kristen's approach or dream at all she was like man this is really exciting what you're doing the industry is changing I want to be at the forefront of um, ushering in those changes and she's been doing that um, not just with me but with her entire stable like if she has a manuscript she believes in and she can't land it somewhere and get the best deal possible She'll encourage uh, self-publishing, and she's worked with um, uh, KDP and um, and some of the self-publishing platforms to help get the uh, the books that she thinks deserves audiences out there any way possible, even if it leaves her out of the the uh, financial stream. And for for the longest time, um, the money she made with me were just deals that she had put together, which were are numerous uh, all over the world not only film and TV deals with like four or five books now, but in over 40 countries, we have uh, books out there and uh, none of that would have happened without her. And for the longest time, like she, because the digital edition of wool is self-published and that's my biggest earner. um, She wasn't part of that revenue stream. and, And I finally realized how much work she's done for me. And I just, we just signed a contract and I cut her in on something. She wasn't even, um, didn't have any right to have to be a part of that. And that's how I feel about her. Like she, she deserves 15% of whatever I make for the rest of my life. As far as I'm concerned, um, she's just been that, uh, heart of a worker and, and that great of a guide and that solid of a friend. Uh, I'll, I'll get teary eyed, uh, seriously just talking about it, but, um, she's been such a huge, important, uh, person in my life, uh, period. Hmm. You know, it is, uh, it's in the, especially in the self-publishing circles these days, self-publishing and and having an agent or the traditional path always seem to be pitted against each other. And it's, it's nice to hear a story where they're complimentary instead. I think, 
I think it's sad that we see self-publishing and traditional publishing as the end of uh, some journey when I've always looked at um, at the music industry as a, a guide for how we should think of ourselves as writers because I there's there's better examples there of what artists go through to get uh, a deal like it's you spend first you spend time sorry that's a probably hear a horn in the background that's a big boat leaving a dock um some local local ambiance there um uh as a musician like the first thing you do is you play cover songs like you don't sit down and write your own music you start playing stairway to heaven or whatever you're into you've been listening to tunes forever so you start playing someone else's music and this is the equivalent of starting writing writing fan fiction the difference between the two is like we expect every single musician started by playing other people's music and if we hear that any writer started their career by writing in someone else's world, we have an, a visceral negative reaction to that, which is bizarre to me. <laughs> um, every filmmaker starts off doing like, you know, the, the same dolly shots that they fell in love with from their favorite, like a Spike uh, Lee kind of um, shot that they just fell in love with. Or they are into Los Fratu and want to tell a, a story that way like it's all fan fiction for the for the longest time and all these different creative endeavors and and if you're a painter you're going to paint still lifes and you're going to sketch the same things everyone else has sketched and i don't know why we're so weird and precious about writing as a creative endeavor but you should you know start with fan fiction and you should be um writing stuff like uh you're on a street corner strumming a guitar where you're just you know basically begging for anyone to listen, anyone to read, um, pay what they can and, and work your way up. And the idea that we have to write these manuscripts where, where no one else is involved in them and then hand them to someone and they're going to say, I'm going to pay you a living wage for this first attempt at this thing that you've not workshopped really. Um, there's no other uh, artistic expression that works that way uh, in a, um, as, as a, as a career. And yeah, so I guess, I guess my point is like, I've, and I've always said this, that not starting self-publishing just seems like making the, the journey more difficult for you. It just seems like the most natural way to get started is to write stories and put them out there and try to develop an audience and work on your craft and hopefully develop the body of work that's going to get someone's attention and get you the deal that you're looking for, whether it's continue with self-publishing or, or do some hybrid deals or get a traditional author uh, offer. But um, yeah, I, I, I see, uh, um, I, I see people who make it right out of the gate with traditional deals. And I just can't imagine all the suffering they did behind the scenes <laughs> to get to that point that were completely, that was completely unnecessary because of the stigma that we've put around self-publishing. It is. You're right. It's a bizarre situation because even if you look at parallel writing industries like uh, film or television, those are fully collaborative efforts. It's not one person locked in a room for a year pumping out a manuscript. And and yet we still have that sort of romantic notion about being a novelist. And uh, ho hopefully that's starting to fade away. But I don't know. It's starting to fade away a little bit, but the the industry is covered by people who want to be writers and and in the traditional sense. And that's put up a barrier to having a, an honest discussion about writing as a, as a career choice. 
because you just have, you know, it's in no other, like musicians don't sing about their industry. Typically, if you, <laughs> if you want to learn about the industry, you don't listen to songs about the industry. You listen, you, you read people writing about the industry. You, you watch talks about people talking about the industry. Um, the writing industry is unique in that the people who do it communicate in the same form about it, that they do it, which means that you have writers writing about writing and the biases that form from that is much different from writers writing about music or writers writing about film. And, uh, and it's create, created quite a, a situation where like, if you follow the New York times, uh, um, like I do, and you read about the publishing industry, you realize you're reading it from the perspective of people who want to get a publishing deal. And it's hard for them to be honest about their coverage because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Uh, you're, uh, you have a unique perspective in, in many ways. And I remember years ago, it might have been on Facebook, seeing a picture of all the belongings you had in the world uh, on a cart in the airport somewhere. And you were getting ready to start your wayfinding journey. Uh, and I'm curious, given sort of how you've chosen to live your life and the way you've approached uh, writing, what is sort of your general approach or philosophy when it comes to the business of writing? I think writing is this funny thing that you can do because you love it. And someone could come along one day and tell you, I want to pay your bills for you, for you to keep doing that. Um, I have a, I have a mom who's into gardening. I have a sister who's into knitting. Um, got a, a brother who's into playing video games. And, you know, like of those three, my brother is, is, is into something that someone could come along and say, we like your Twitch channel. You're going to be a millionaire now. That's happened to people. Hmm. Um, it, it'd be very hard for my sister to, for for someone to come along and say like, "You're you're an amazing knitter. You're you're. I'm now going to make you a millionaire." Or for someone to come along to my mom and say that gardening is unbelievable. I'm going to make you a millionaire. I honestly don't think that this is a fair system. That you, you have different passions and hobbies, and some of them can make you independently wealthy, and the other ones you just do because you like, but that's the world we live in. Like where some things are more uh, valued by more consumers. Yeah. I, I think of the writing industry as like um, a hobby that somehow gets turned into an occupation. And if you go into it because you're passionate about it and you want to do it, you can't lose. Like it's like taking up running for a, a, a hobby and uh, I'm impressed by the people who say, you know, I'm going to go into writing to get rich and actually make it work. That's impressive because it's almost impossible to pull off. Um, it has happened with some people and it's really amazing when it does, but it seems like a recipe for heartache for most people to go into writing, thinking about the the money they're, they're going to earn. It's just not how I went into it. And it's not how I'd, I would advise anybody going into it. <laughs> we had a saying when I was uh, in education that you know, people don't get into teaching to make money. And I think you could probably make that same statement about writing. Yeah. If, if, if you're in it to make money, like it's because you got lucky along the way and you realize, okay, if I pour gas on this, um, I'll, I'll do even better. But um, breaking out that way, is super, super difficult. Um, in a way that, you know, it's the same with acting, like do it because you love it and enjoy your community theater and um, try to be involved in the industry in every way you can. But like, just say like, I'm going to move to Hollywood and become a star. 
um, we look at the lottery winners, the people where that worked out for them and say, Hey, it can happen. So everyone should have that dream. But I'm, I'm much more aware of the, uh, the reality that most people face, which is to have that dream crushed. doesn't mean you shouldn't have that dream. I just think the way we go about it should, we should have healthier expectations about what we can get out of it. And, uh, for me, that's like, enjoy, enjoy the craft itself. Enjoy the, um, the art that no one can stop you from making and concentrate on that. And then let that develop your craft to the point that you can possibly, uh, gain an audience. Nice. Nice. I, uh, I kind of wanted to bring the conversation to a close with, with something I was hoping I'd get to do someday if I ever spoke to you. So I, I forgive me, but I have to take the, the opportunity to do that now. And I just have to give you a heartfelt thank you. Uh, you may not remember this, but several years ago, I emailed you with the first couple chapters of a post-apoc story manuscript I was working on. And uh, it involved a protagonist who lived on a boat. And I couldn't think of anyone in the world who would be more qualified from both the, the writing's perspective and from uh, life on a boat to look at it. And I, I asked you if you would be willing to take a look at it and just see if it was sort of factually accurate or it felt right. And I didn't expect even a reply. And uh, not only did you reply, but you, you read it and told me it sounded pretty spot on. And uh, I just want to sincerely thank you for that. I, it, it meant a tremendous amount to me to, for you to do that. And I promised myself that if we ever spoke that I would uh, make sure you, you knew how much uh, I appreciated that. So I just want to thank you. Oh man, that, my pleasure. You're going to do the same thing for, uh, you probably already have for, for other writers. And there were s- several writers when I was starting out who took a huge chance on, on reading my work when I um, just, you know, was having a hard time getting family members to read anything that I've <laughs> written. So um, yeah, it's, it, it keeps going around and, uh, you know, we're, we'll always get spread too thin to, to do everything that we can for everybody that we'd like to, but, um, you have to, we have to, you know, try to boost each other up and keep this industry going. Our competition is not amongst ourselves, but with everything else people can be doing with their free time. So, um, I am just devoted as much time as possible to like helping people figure out how to to get their work out there and how to be excited about writing and excited about reading. And um, those are the, the kinds of companies that I champion that are helping writers and readers and the kinds of um, uh, artists that I want to celebrate. I mean, it's just very selfish of me, but this is like, I've loved reading my whole life and I, I want more great works out there. So um, yeah, thanks for the kind words, man. But um, you'll, you'll keep passing it along, especially with a podcast like this where you can turn on, uh, readers to um, more great books. That's a huge service. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I have I have continued to pass it on. And I encourage others to do the same. I, I agree. It's not a zero sum game. Uh, and the more the more quality stories we can put into the world and build some empathy in this crazy place, the better off we're going to be. Totally agree. Yeah. Thanks again, man, for your time. I know you got some guests on the boat, and uh, it's early morning out your way. So, uh, again, highly appreciative. Thank you so much. Um, it, it was great talking to you. My pleasure, man. Anytime. All right. Thanks, you. Bye-bye. So there you have it, the interview with Hugh Howie. Uh, what would you think, J.D.? 
Yeah, I mean, he is such a fascinating person to listen to, and and he's like one of those guys I would love to lock in a room with a notepad and and just, you know, like squeeze his brain and get every ounce of information out of him because he just, he seems to have such a a good handle on on every aspect of this business. Um, And, and, you know, some of the other, I mean, the the things he said about Kristen, I mean, that, that, you know, she she changed, you know, his life, she changed my life, she changed Josh Mallerman's life. Um, She is a a fantastic agent, and it's really cool to hear her get props from, from somebody else as well. Yeah, totally agree with that. He, uh, and you know, he has, uh, he's been in, now he's in both arenas. You know, he's traditionally published. He's, uh, technically a hybrid. He started out as, as an independent. And a, a few of the things he said that really stuck with me is he talked about that, you know, it's not necessarily a fair system that passions and hobbies don't always pay the same. And I, and I thought that was really insightful and it, it's good motivation that um, at some point I think you have to decide whether it is a career or a profession or whether it's a hobby and both of those choices are totally fine but I think you as the writer need to be very clear as to which path you're on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I talk to people about this all the time. I, I was writing, I've been writing since I was a little kid. And it's one of those things I did for free for, you know, 90% of my life. And it, it's really cool to get paid for it. Uh, but if those checks stopped coming in tomorrow, that, that wouldn't change anything. I would still sit down at my desk every chance I got. And I would, I would put stories down on paper. I mean, it, it's something that it, it, it's one of those things that's going to be with me forever. Um, no different than somebody that paints or somebody that, that writes music, you know, it's, it's an outlet. Um, it, it, and he's right. I mean, not everybody does. It's, it's not a fair system all the time. Um, you know, hobbies don't always pay the same. Um, and if you decide that this is going to be a career thing for you, you, know, you, you have to understand that by making that decision, you're, you're not just creating art anymore. You're creating a product. Mm. Um, and a lot of people are going to weigh in on that particular product. And you have to be on board with that. And that, that's another whole obstacle that you, you kind of have to jump over and, and you know, get on board with because it's, it's a difficult thing to have, you know, five, 10, 15 people on the other side of a phone call or the other side of a conference room telling you what you need to change in, in something that was an artistic endeavor for you. Um, but you know, eventually you get, you get slight, you kind of get used to it, I guess it, it, you grow a thicker skin, um, and, and realize they're, they're putting a lot of money behind you to make it happen. And, you know, you've got to make, um, you know, sometimes you got to make changes. Yeah, he talked a lot too about uh, the collaborative collaborative nature of storytelling, and I know that's something near and dear to your heart. What you know, what are some of the what are some of the really important takeaways or benefits you see as as being a collaborative writer as opposed to that lone wolf sitting in the cabin typing, you know, all day long? It, it's really it's the brainstorming of it. Um, like when I was working on Dracul with with Dacre Stoker, you know, I, I approached him with a, a rough idea as far as what what I felt the story should be. Um, but when he started weighing in with, you know, facts, you know, things about Bram's life and his sister's life and his mother's life and things like that, that we weaved into the story, that's when it became a really good book. And those are things that I would have not found on my own. I mean, you can, you can research to death, but you're not going to always stumble into those. And just having a, another opinion and being able to mix it up, um, it, it's key, I think, in, in storytelling. Um, and he was right. I mean, it really is a collaborative process. I mean, people were, you know, long before they started putting stories down on paper, they were telling stories to each other. They were singing stories to each other. And one story was passed from this person to this person, from this generation to that generation. Um, and it changed and it evolved. And, and that's that's part of the process as well. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Working with somebody else, if you haven't tried it, I, I think every writer should. Um, and it's going to it's gonna definitely be something that's going to improve your own writing. Yeah, I totally agree. So, I think that's pretty much a wrap for the Hugh Howie interview. Uh, any other words of wisdom you, you heard in there you wanted to mention, or did we pretty much hit it all? 
he always makes me want to run out and buy a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and then I remember a long time ago, somebody told me the best boat is your neighbor's boat. Oh, um, somebody, somebody, somebody else's boat. Because um, <laughs> they are a lot of work. Um, but that, that, you know, the idea of running off on a sailboat and, and going around the world, I mean, I think that appeals to just about everybody. And, you know, very few actually pull the trigger on it. And it's, it's really cool that he did. And he's getting to experience that. Yeah, he's living the life. He's I couldn't be, it life. couldn't happen, happen to a better guy, right? Nope. Nope, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.